Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. You, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. Talking today, a little mix of historiography, gold rush history, broader Canadian history, colonialism, all in the context of Wagon Road North. The Saga of the Caribou Gold Rush, a book that was originally published back in 1960 by Art Downs that looks at, obviously, the Caribou Gold Rush. It was a popular history book, incredibly successful. It was republished in 61, 62, 63, 65, 67, ultimately went through a a number of revisions uh, again in, in 73 and a third edition from that in 1993 just a incredible success as a popular history book in canada it was primarily a book that was based in photographs of the caribou gold rush that art downs collected and the text supported the photographs in telling that story and it has recently been updated by ken mather who is a historian who has published a number of books on British Columbia history, including the history of the Caribou region. He's also been involved through his career in a lot of interpretation, a lot of tours, uh, working at historic sites. And you get the sense that that really informs how he writes, is understanding how to engage with folks. And he went in, he updated this book. He, he noted that there were some absences in it that were part of a colonial historiography that certainly this book was a part of. And it has just come out again by our friends at Heritage House. So fully updated by Ken. He talks about how he he touched up parts of it, but generally speaking, that section is there and then the additions that Ken made. So I really enjoyed talking about this. There's so many different angles to get at with this particular book and this particular project from the way we do and understand popular history, the use of photographs, historiography, colonial historiography, trying to update that within the framework of of modern historiography and, and modern methodologies, as well as just the pure storytelling side of writing for popular audiences and in popular publications. So there was a lot here to unpack with Ken. I really enjoyed my discussion with him. I think you will as well. So let's get right to that conversation. All right. And Ken Mather joins us from the Okanagan Valley. Ken, how are you doing today? Uh, Doing very well, despite the fires all around. Yes, uh, we certainly hope everybody is doing well. You said just before we started to record that uh, you don't have a, a much of a view right now because of the fires and the smoke, eh? No, and I, and I normally have a million-dollar view in, in a $50 house, but um, <laughs> at this point, the million-dollar view is obscured by smoke. So Yeah, so uh, so hopefully everyone is, is doing well and staying safe uh, as much as you can out there. Certainly tough times for, for folks out there. We, yeah. we yeah. certainly uh, recognize that so so with that let's talk about the book again wagon road north and this is something that i was really struck by when the folks at heritage house reached out to me because as somebody who grew up in ontario still lives in ontario the west for as much as i did spend time in the prairies during my my studies the west gold rush stuff has never really been front of mind for me. So I was very excited to get into this book, 
look into it a little further, particularly given the, the interesting history of it. So mm -hmm. for anyone who, who has not ever seen any of the editions of Wagon Road North, could you just maybe give a brief Coles notes on what it is and maybe why it was so influential when it first came out? Okay, we'll do. Maybe I'll just give a brief uh, description of the of the author, a guy by the name of Art Downs, who actually was born in England and ended up in Saskatchewan at the age of five. Uh, moved out to British Columbia during the war years in and um, the forties, and then his dad uh, joined the navy and they moved out to British Columbia and he uh, ended up working on his dad's ranch in the Caribou. Uh, and he said he learned two things, uh, the first of which was that uh, anybody who owned a ranch in the Caribou had to have a job outside to fund their ranching uh, weakness. And the other thing was how to brew uh, a particularly potent brew called uh, Quenelle River Screech. So Art was very interested in history, and he, in the 1950s, began to write short articles, uh, mostly about the paddle wheelers. But there was a magazine called the Caribou Digest, uh, and he wrote for them. And in 1955, he bought the Caribou Digest, renamed it BC Outdoors, and it became a very um, well-subscribed magazine. And Art could publish all the uh, historical articles he wanted because it was it, the outdoors included history as far as he was concerned. Mm -hmm. But he was a great conservationist as well and uh, really advocated for the preservation of wilderness areas and certain breeds. Uh, of animals, uh, game animals. And so uh, he was really one of the first um, advocates for conservation in a large scale, uh, certainly in British Columbia. And um, in 1960, uh, the town of Barkerville, which had been the heart of the Caribou Gold Rush, was recognized by the province, actually in 1958, 100 years after British Columbia, the colony had been founded. Um, Barkerville was established as a historic park, and it was put under the auspices of the BC Parks Branch. And of course, Parks Branch were very good at running parks, but they uh, didn't have a lot of background in history or heritage sites. So Art wrote this book called Wagon Road North, which was mostly a photograph book, lots and lots of photographs that he'd gleaned from the provincial archives and various other sources. Uh, but also a great wealth of anecdotes and background information that made this book a rich source of Caribou Gold Rush history. And the road, of course, the Caribou Wagon Road that ran through it. So that was kind of the beginning. So that was published and reprinted and reprinted, I think, about four or five times in the 1960s alone. Mm -hmm. And finally, Art Downs started a public uh, publishing company called Heritage House. And the very first book that was published by Heritage House was Wagon Road North, the second edition. Uh, there's been three more editions since then, but basically uh, the flavor that Art Downs gave to it, it still exists. Very readable, very accessible, uh, lots and lots of photographs that really make it come alive. And... Um, during its day, it was a runaway bestseller. I, the last I heard it, it sold 140,000 copies. It's incredible. Like, yeah, yeah, really quite incredible. And it's rec it was recognized in, in the BC Encyclopedia, uh, published in 2000, as one of the top five publications in the history of British Columbia publishing. So art was um, really quite an interesting character, but also 
What's fascinating to me is I came along, I was working in Barkerville in 1979. I like to tell people I was just a boy then, but that would be an out-and-out lie. So what happened is we, for the first time, Barkerville, and this was 1979, so Barkerville had been around for quite a while, 20 years. For the first time, BC Parks had recognized that heritage sites were special, and it actually started a curatorial staff. And so we had a curator, and I became the interpretation and education coordinator. There was a registrar. Um, there were various other positions, obviously display work. And we had no real background history to go on in terms of Barkerville, other than Wagon Road North. And so it became the Bible in many ways. And it's interesting because, of course, that's a lot of years ago. And I have been a researcher from before that up until the present. And I have never found a, an inaccuracy in Wagon Road North. And that's quite amazing, considering that it was it was kind of pulled together in a hurry, I think, in 1960. Yeah, that, that is pretty impressive for a book of that era, especially of a, a town that might not have had the same type of written history and archival sources as potentially some other folks. And, and for anyone who's wondering uh, if you've never been out to Barkerville, which I would suggest is probably the majority of people listening, potentially. Mm -hmm. um, it looks here about, what, 200, what, 180, 200 kilometers southeast of Prince George? Is that the best sort of way marker yeah, for Yeah, that it? would probably be as close as anything. Uh, it is actually, you, to drive there, you turn at Quenelle, and you gain 2,000 feet I'll use feet because that's uh, that's what we used in those good old days in elevation. And you go up into the Caribou Mountains. And so you're really not too close to anything. It was a good hour and a half to two hour drive down to Quenelle. So Barkerville was in the heart of the Caribou Mountains and obviously became the heart of the Caribou Gold Rush. So let's get into that a little bit and, and sort of the, the brass tacks of the books, because it, it, it's interesting to me to think about this, because so much of the mythology surrounding gold rushes in North America are either the North or the one in San Francisco and, and sort of exactly. the, the California yeah. ones. So this particular one, the, this region of the country, at least to me, doesn't usually get the same attention from everything I've read when you're talking about gold rushes. So what was going on in and around the area that is now Barkerville during the gold rush? And how many people were drawn there? What type of activity was there? Does it really get to the same scale as what we might have seen, say, in the north or further south? Well, okay, good question. And um, it's interesting because Barkerville found itself almost exactly halfway between San Francisco and Dawson City. And in fact, it was a gold rush that happened sort of halfway between San Francisco and Dawson City. So San Francisco, the great uh, California gold rush was 1849, the 49ers. And uh, the miners began to explore further and further north till they got to the 49th parallel British territory. But what happened is in 1858, word came out that there was gold up in the British territory. Uh, and it, is, it was ruled by the Hudson's Bay Company at that time under a monopoly. And so literally overnight, uh, and I mean literally, 30,000 Californians descended on little old dusty Fort Victoria and made their way to the Fraser River and began to work their way up the Fraser 
into an area they called the Caribou. So there, were, there was really kind of two gold rushes because the Fraser River gold rush began to peter out a bit because it was almost impossible to get through the Fraser Canyon. Uh, but once you did, you got into this area they called the Caribou and you began to find gold in incredible paying quantities. And so by 1863, so well, 1862, uh, you know, so we're four years in, uh, we're looking at discovery of Williams Creek. And Williams Creek, and I've done my research on that, uh, mile for mile, it was only mild for about a five-mile stretch, only mined, uh, mile for mile was probably the richest gold creek ever on the planet. Uh, it would eclipse the Bonanza Creek in the Yukon and various other creeks in California. In the 1860s, they reckoned $13 million in gold had come out of this fairly short stretch of creek. So Barkerville grew up around this incredibly rich ground on Williams Creek. And at one point had a kind of a floating population of 5,000 people. Historians have wanted to say that it was the largest city north of San Francisco and west of Chicago, but that's an out-and-out fabrication. <laughs> uh, you know, it was probably one of the larger ones. It was certainly larger than Victoria. Um, but at any rate, it, it was it was the heart of the gold discoveries that were going on all through the 1860s that amounted in uh, to a huge, incredible fortunes. And so Barkerville was a frontier town, kind of originally anyway, settled by Americans, but uh, fairly quickly after that, settled by people who called themselves Canadians. And of course, Canada was this distant group of colonies in the east. Uh, British Columbia was its own colony. Uh, but the Canadians came, they came from upper and lower Canada, what we'd call Ontario, Quebec. But they also came from the, the Atlantic provinces, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, um, Nova Scotia. And so there were, there were sort of two parallel populations in Barkerville. There were the Americans and there were what was called the Canadians. And the Canadians brought this really interesting flavor that was much different from the uh, gold rushes that had happened in the United States. How does this then play out with regards to how our Downs went about telling that particular story? And how does that really manifest itself in, in the, the book itself? Because one of the things that struck me in going through it and the way people described it was how it's so different or was so different at the time from other history books, from popular history books. And yes. it seems to me from, from how you're talking, there's a built-in narrative there. There's, I would imagine, a pretty good treasure trove of photographs that, that Art had the ability to use. So how does that all play out when he goes about to put together the book and, and what are readers presented with in that first edition? Well, once again, good question, because you see, the 1860s, the art of photography began to take off. And so British Columbia Gold Rush was blessed with some very talented photographers. And so art was able to go to the provincial archives of British Columbia and access literally thousands of photographs, many of them uh, along the Caribou Road. And just to digress a bit, of course, the colonial government of British Columbia, the colony of British Columbia, uh, had to have a way of getting supplies and what was needed to the miners. And so they began to develop trails, uh, but their largest investment was to build a wagon road from Yale at the foot of the Fraser Canyon, blasting its way through the precipitous Fraser Canyon 
and then all the way up to Barkerville. By 1865, this road was completed. So um, the photo the photographers were there taking photographs all along the way, especially in Barkerville, because it was uh, pretty photogenic. Barkerville burned to the ground in 1868, and there were photographers on site to chronicle the before and after, literally the day before and the day after the Great Fire. So Art had access to all these photographs. Not only that, a lot of accounts, first-hand accounts, had been written by mostly Englishmen who'd come to get rich in the caribou. Um, the London Times published uh, accounts that said anybody who could go to the caribou would get rich. The gold was lying around on the ground. So many adventurers traveled up the caribou road and got to Barkerville and then wrote out their accounts. And so Art had these stories to sample as well. And he was able to put them all together in a very uh, well laid out book, you know, talking about it was one chapter called The Golden Gravel, which, of course, is, was exactly what was there, only the gold wasn't really on the ground. In fact, at Barkerville, it was 50 feet below the ground. But anyway, Art had access to all of this, and he was able to put together a book that I think was 80-some pages and lots and lots of photographs, but surprisingly thorough. So that was the original version, and it really hasn't changed a whole lot since then. Well, so that's what's kind of interesting to me, too, about this new edition is you mentioned earlier that you found no inaccuracies with the book. And as you mentioned, you, you've spent your career researching and, and doing work in, in this type of a field. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that with a lot of the new editions that came out back in the 60s and subsequently, it seems to have, have stayed relatively the same. So I'm curious, what did you do when you came to this project for the the publishing, republishing of this book, the new edition now in 2021? What could you bring to it, given your background and the research that you've done? Uh, I know there's some new photos, contemporary photos in there as well. But just in general, what what did you come to this project with and what contributions were you able to make? Fairly significant, I might say, not wanting to blow my own horn, but of course, the last edition, the fifth revision, I think was in 1993. And what, what I took over was, uh, was basically the, the manuscript that had, prepared, uh, had done for, been done for that revision. And I realized right off the bat that uh, history has changed quite a bit since 1993. Now, I'm an old white guy, but the old white guys are no longer the ones who are the most important. They're the stories that need to be told. And what I saw right off the bat uh, was not only, you know, the archaic terms, Indians instead of indigenous people, Chinamen instead of Chinese, those sort of things. But I also realized that those minorities were barely visible in Wagon Road North. And so I set about to write a, a chapter on the indigenous people's contribution, huge contribution to the gold rush and to Barkerville. Uh, And then I did a chapter on the Chinese who were also significantly important in the caribou gold rush. Uh, And then another chapter yet on the women of the caribou. So it was really the challenge for me was to take this book written in the 20th century and uh, drag it kicking and screaming into the 21st century. And I hope that I've been able to accomplish that to some extent. 
Well, that, that seems like quite a challenge, I have to say, to go and take this book, even if it was relatively short in its length, and add this. Because were, were there points in the existing manuscript that you felt were in conflict with these things that, that you just talked about, the indigenous contributions, uh, role of Chinese workers, women in the caribou? Was there part of the narrative that existed in the version that you had from 93 that conflicted potentially with some of what you were finding? Well, interestingly, not so much conflicted, but absent. Mm. You know, like the indigenous people were mentioned, and of course, they were the ones who discovered gold in British Columbia, so it was pretty hard to avoid them. Uh, They were very involved. What I did find, and Art Downs hadn't dealt with this, but um, the Fraser Canyon War took place between mostly American miners and the Uncapatma people who were called the Thompson people by the fur traders. And they were mining on the Fraser Canyon River and they came in conflict with the miners. And most of the miners coming from California, there, there was an attitude towards indigenous people that was very, very dismissive. And so basically what you would do is you'd kill them off if you could, if they got in your way. So I had to deal to some extent with the, the, what's called the Canyon War. And the Canyon War story had been very one-sided. And, and so I had to deal with that in a fairly short piece at the beginning of the book, uh, and then kind of go beyond that to telling the story of the indigenous people all through the Caribou Gold Rush. So fortunately, there's been good research done, and it's possible to tell a really balanced account of what was called the Canyon War. Uh, Daniel Marshall uh, has written a book that really is um, extremely well-researched and tells the story in a very balanced way. And so that was the sort of thing that confronted me. But beyond that, really, as I say, the the Chinese, the indigenous people, even the women were barely mentioned. And so it was important for me to tell their story and at the same time spruce up the parts that didn't change much since 1993. And that kind of speaks to a little bit to just the that this is almost, for as much as the research that you did into it, the additions you made, there's also a historiography benefit to this of thinking about what was being written in 1960 when this book first came out and the colonial lens through which a lot of people were writing. And I don't mean that necessarily as a, to be dismissive of the project, but more as for us as readers, when we go back and read things from this era, what was being focused on? What was deemed important by those individuals who were writing it? And that absence is very important. It's a sort of it's it's one of those things too. When whenever I've taught courses at the university level, you always talk about the absences, whether it's in written material, archives, or or even cultural items. When we go look at those, you know, the absence is very important. So it's it's great that you point that out. And again, I don't think of it as a way to dismiss the book as it was in 1960, but it's important that we recognize that that was the the case in 1960, and this was the perspective from which it was written. So that brings me, the, the idea of historiography, it brings me to this question that I, that I really wanted to ask you, because you've authored a bunch of books that have looked at 
West Coast history, the most recent one, uh, Stagecoach North, right? Uh, right. That, that you've done. And I'm, I'm curious because we, as we were talking before, you, you noted that a lot of people would refer to these as, as trade books. And yeah. I'm curious from, from your perspective, as someone who's written a lot in this genre, what is it that makes a really good trade book or a popular history book that distinguishes it from the stuff that, say, university presses are putting out and, in my opinion, makes it more fun to read? I think that's the key right there is readability. So you've got to have use uh, a pro style that, that's readable. And as I've mentioned before, I think anecdotes are very important. But anecdotes, you know, and what I would say is we have to be careful to not judge what I would call trade books for lack of accuracy, because the research I do is incredibly detailed and long and is very important. But what I'm looking for perhaps is a little different than um, academics would be looking for. I'm looking for the people stories. I'm looking for the, the general society. Uh, I'm not necessarily focusing on the, on the broader themes that are, that are at work. I'm trying to tell a story more. But as I say, the research is, is crucial and good trade books can be very readable and yet in very, very accurate. I think Wagon Road North is one of those. You know, it's basically a picture book. And yet there's, as I say, there's very little in there that I found that wasn't bang on. And I've been researching those same files since 1979. And so, you know, there's a few things. I would manage to retell the story of Billy Barker, the, who gave the, his name to Barkerville, things like that. There were research that I had done years ago that I was able to incorporate into the the newer this year's version. And how much does your background working at historic sites, working in parks, doing interpretation, how does that influence the way that you write and the way you potentially think about trade books where you have that interaction with the public, you get a sense when people come to a site, what they're looking for. And also, I think just as importantly, what will capture their attention while they're there, have you found that there's some sort of a parallel between doing that type of work on the ground, interpretation, working with the public that is beneficial when you sit down to write a book? Oh, totally. Uh, you know, I, I, I wish I had a dollar for every guided tour I've given. And it started in, on the street in Barkerville. Uh, I would give guided tours and you very quickly learned by watching people's faces, what they were interested in, what they weren't interested in. Um, you know, the stories that grabbed their attention, and that has carried on through my life. So really, um, before I actually started seriously writing history, I probably had 25 years of guided tours under my belt. So the, the history that I have written tends to be very similar to the interpretation I've done in heritage sites. You know, that doesn't mean the story doesn't get told and told well, and it doesn't mean that I don't uh, interact with a lot of the uh, academic work that's been done, but I do it in a way that is brings the reader along in in a way that they can they can understand the points. Uh, but I don't need to get into great detail. I can tell the story. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I've noticed with academic books is that for as much as 
people will talk about considering audience. I think too often that's not actually what happens in some of these books. And whether it's taking the audience for granted or just as importantly, it's this idea of wanting to be super high level and ending sentences and, and using words with isms that yes. can be very distracting to the reader. And I do find that when I'm reading, it's individual stories that do make for the best type of history. And I understand that you don't want to use an anecdote as an example that proves 100% of the time this was the case, because obviously it doesn't. And it's very dangerous or it can be dangerous to rely solely on anecdotal evidence. But when an anecdote is used to support what the larger body of evidence suggests, I think that's when history becomes its most accessible. And from what I gather, that's kind of what your approach would be. Yes, and that is how I've approached it. In fact, usually what happens is there's a concept that I want to illustrate, but I'll use an anecdote to illustrate it. Uh, and most yeah. often those anecdotes are to do with the people and their reaction to their circumstances and the way they behaved under certain pressures or um, opportunities. And so the anecdotes carry the story, but they also illustrate the thesis that's behind. And, and there is a thesis that I'm trying to convey. Wagon Road North is is a little trickier because, um, you know, my, my my other books have been basically prose with, with photographs, but this is actually photographs with a smattering of prose. So Wagon Road North was a little more challenging because I wanted to get the anecdotes in there as well, not just the photos. And so how did you go about doing that? Like, what was the strategy to ensure that, I mean, at, at the end of the day, this is Art Downs's book that you are updating, certainly. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. you know, how do you do that where you want to include those anecdotes, where you want to tell those stories while still being as true as you can to Art Downs and, and the work that he did? Well, what I found is quite often I would say, oh, I've got to tell that story. I've got to tell the story of Florence Wilson, the, the great uh, woman in Barkerville who started the, the, the reading library in the midst of it and, and the Caribou Amateur Dramatic Association. So what I did is I went looking for photographs. And so when I found a photograph of Florence Wilson, I was then able to tell her story uh, and give a visual side as well. So very often, like when I was researching the Chinese, I would be looking for photographs that that were identifiable where I could tell those people who were being photographed, tell their story, but in, in a general way, illustrating the, the plight and the, you know, the activities of the Chinese in, in Gold Rush, British Columbia. So the photograph sort of came second. So I added a lot of photographs to this uh, book because it was a photograph book, but it allowed me then to tell the story that's in the photographs. And, and what is that process like? Because I know that when I did a book that, and for full disclosure, it was published with Heritage House. So okay. uh, I, I am I am in the tank for Heritage House as a, as a company because of that. Yeah, but, me too. <laughs> you know, so, uh, but it was very similar in that we had a lot of photos, but the way the way we did it, our team did it for us was text first photos to support the text. Yes. Whereas you're coming at a book that has existing photos, has some text you said it was a photo book so how was that balance for you in text versus photo and what comes first 
given that you had such a collection of photos that were already part of the book to deal with? Well, yeah, and that was the challenge. So what I did is I tried, you know, I added a new chapter on the indigenous people. I added a new chapter on the on the women of the caribou, a new chapter on the Chinese. So it was brand new ground for me. You know, the original stuff that Art Downs had come up with, I didn't mess with too much. I, I corrected his captions and, you know, the text that he had. Uh, but I feel like the real contribution I've made uh, is to be able to tell the story that hasn't been told. Uh, and that's of those sort of marginalized people who really played a big role in the whole thing. So I was left with a, uh, an opportunity to go out and look for photographs that told the story I wanted to tell. And so I kind of had a, a mindset of looking for a photograph that would show the Chinese in mining. Uh, and so, you know, I would find the ideal photograph that illustrated the rocker box or, or whatever, and, and then write some text about it. And it seems, it seems to have worked because um, I had so many good photographs to choose from. And that's the key. Yeah. It's always easier when you have a great uh, collection of photos. It's true. To work yeah. from, uh, yeah, the, you, you know, cutting muscle, as they say. Uh, is, well, is what interesting, you be doing. though, um, there, there is a bit of a challenge. <laughs> and having written a number of books on British Columbia history, um, the Provincial Archives is the richest source, but it's also the most expensive source. Mm -hmm. If you want to use a, a Provincial Archives photograph, uh, you pay a lot of money. And so what happened is I spent a lot of time looking at other sources so we could keep the cost because it would literally have cost thousands and thousands of dollars to get user fees for all the photographs if they'd come from the archive. So what we had to do is uh, I went all poured through the Library and Archives Canada, poured through the um, Vancouver City Archives, other archival repositories where there were photographs collected that could be used for, for a less of a user fee. So it was a bit of a handicap. You know, and Heritage House had a lot of photographs in their own collection that they were able to use as well. But even at that, the user fees, you know, nowadays when you use photographs in history books, it's expensive. Yeah. And um, rightly so. I realize the archives need to make money. But on the other hand, as a writer, it's very frustrating because I know that I can't use all the photographs that I'd like to simply because it's, it becomes cost prohibitive. Yeah. It, it is sort of a, a catch 22, right? Where you want to have the photos and you really want to make great use of them, but sometimes, yeah, you got to cut because of the money. Uh, it, yeah. It's one of the great struggles of, of writing uh, in, in this genre. So I'm curious to know, and, and I'll sort of get you out of here on this. This is obviously a book about, this particular region, this this area during the gold rush, but obviously there's there's larger themes here. So, what would your pitch be to somebody who lives outside of the region, uh, someone who lives in B in uh, PEI, or uh, certainly where I am here in Ottawa, or or anywhere uh, outside of the region? What is the the draw to this book, and what would your pitch be to them to encourage them to go pick it up? Well, I think what it does depict is something that's unique in Canada. Um, perhaps I shouldn't say that because obviously the Klondike Gold Rush, which came later, but the, 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 the gold rush in British Columbia was really 
it evolved from the south to the north. In other words, it was it was to some extent an American type of frontier story that happened in British territory. And the differences, of course, are very important. But British Columbia's story in terms of the gold rush and in terms of the coming of the Chinese, the, you know, the interaction with the indigenous people was, was unique. And I think anybody who's interested in Canadian history would be fascinated. The other thing that's, that's very interesting that I have to mention is the very fact that there were these so-called Canadians in Barkerville, in fact, great many of them, was a very strong influencer in British Columbia joining Confederation. I point out one fact. On July the 1st, 1868, there was a Dominion Day celebration in Barkerville. That was the only place in North America. And they celebrated Dominion Day because they were Canadians and they really thought British Columbia someday should join Canada. But that was years away. And so there's this influence of the Canadians in Barkerville and the Caribou Gold Rush that is results in the province of British Columbia in 1871. And really without that and without them celebrating Dominion Day on the 1st of July, long before anybody else in what was then called Canada thought of it, um, is, is significant. In fact, I like to think these were the fathers of Confederation, fathers and mothers of Confederation. It's fascinating that Dr. R.W.W. Carroll, who was a Canadian senator who had been the doctor in Barkerville, is the one who in 1879 moved that the, a celebration be established on the 1st of July called Dominion Day. They'd been doing it in Barkerville for 14 years by then. No, 13. But anyway... Um, so there's this Canada connection that I think people in Canada need to learn about. Yeah, I think that's very well said. And and yeah, it's I always kind of get a little frustrated when we talk about pure regional histories as the idea of what happens in one part of the country doesn't influence what happens in other parts of the country. Uh, yeah. and it's certainly interconnected there. So yeah, definitely would encourage folks to check out the updated version. It'd be interesting too, if you can get your hands on an original version out there and uh, and see the, the additions that, that Ken has made sort of side by side. So Ken, if anyone's interested, want to go pick up a copy of Wagon Road North, where can they do that? And where can they find out more about you and potentially some of your other books if they're interested in this area? Well, my books have been published through Heritage House. And so um, you could just go to Heritage House Publishers. But of course, uh, Heritage House has a great distribution system and they get their books out on the book racks all across, especially Western Canada. But Chapters Indigo uh, would be, has all of the books uh, that, that Heritage House has available and would be a very easy way to obtain copies the new, of the new Wagon Road North and books that I've written as well. Yeah, so some of those other ones, I mentioned Stagecoach North, you also have Trail North. So you're really in this area, right? So if anyone yep. goes to, if wants to read Wagon Road North, you're, you're in that sort of genre. So if anyone's interested in that, they'll probably be interested in the rest of your work. I think so. Yeah, um, it's all, it's regional, but I think it has an impact uh, on the broader country of Canada. 
Yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, yeah, like I said, it's it's very difficult, I think, to just say this happened here is totally isolated and that's that. So it, it certainly uh, it is all connected to broader shifts and broader trends within mm-hmm. Canada and, and the historiography. So again, Wagon Road North, the saga of the Caribou Gold Rush updated version here in 2021. Ken Mather, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks, Sean. Great to talk to you. So there you have it. My discussion with Ken Mather, and I certainly thank him for joining me from the Okanagan Valley. And again, certainly hope that everyone out there is doing as well as possible, given the current circumstances and and sending all of our thoughts to our friends out there. And certainly encourage everybody, if you're interested, check out Wagon Road North, the saga of the Caribou Gold Rush or any of the other works by Ken, as we mentioned on the show, Trail North and Stagecoach North are his two most recent books. So certainly would encourage you to check those out if you're interested in the genre. And my thanks, of course, to everyone at Heritage House Publishing for helping to set this one up. So that'll do it for this week on the show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe wherever it is you get your podcast. Do the likes, ratings, comments, all that good stuff. Helps grow the show. Helps other people learn about what we got going on here on the show. And, of course, do head on over to activehistory.ca you can find all of our past episodes under the podcast tab you can also check out some of the written material that has been going up on the site it always is interesting to see what comes up over the summer i love some of the the pieces that we have the most recent one this week was by daniel ross who great piece on saving chinatown over the last 40 years a very interesting piece by daniel there so certainly encourage you to check that out and all the other posts that are over on activehistory.ca and of course if you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show please do reach out historyslam at gmail.com you can find me on twitter at the sean graham got a lot of great stuff coming up for you over the next few weeks as we keep going strong with the weekly schedule maybe take a week off here and there but for the most part we'll, we'll be weekly as we push towards episode number 200 it's almost here i, I can see it on the horizon so very excited for getting to that episode and a lot of fun stuff planned but of course if you have stuff that you want to hear do reach out and let me know so thank you again for listening we'll be back with you again next week but until then if you're out and you see enrico palazzo please say hi for me Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.